0: How many of you have ever been to a soccer game for five-year-olds? Ever been to one? Yeah. What is that like? It's entertaining. You've got like, what, 16 kids on the field running around. You've got the random kid over here tracking the clouds in the sky. You've got the kid over here messing with the ant pile. And then you've got the rest of the kids running around in a swarm of a group like a bunch of Labrador Retrievers, excited, chasing the ball, running around, just excited about nothing. When you coach five-year-old soccer, you, you don't come up with plays. There's no plays at all. You basically have three things that you're trying to help them with. And here, here they are. Go in the right direction. You're scoring a goal in that goal, not that goal. And what's so confusing, I don't know why we do this to these poor kids, is after halftime, you switch goals. (laughs) And so, now which goal are you going that? No, you're going to that goal! And you even have them point, and they point in the wrong direction. And and inevitably, they still score in the wrong goal. They look up to mom and dad for encouragement. What do you do? you still cheer for them even though they scored it in the wrong goal. That's number one. Number two, you tell them don't leave the field while the game is going on. I've seen more than one kid go to the end of the field because they found something interesting over in the trees. Or my child, when we, we played over to the Meadowwoods Rec Center. We played indoor soccer there. She, on the court, had her own little dance routine in the corner of the court while the rest of the game was going on. She had some little ballet thing happening in the corner. That was not Callie. That was my youngest. Yes, that was quite entertaining for my wife and I to watch her just completely zone out from the game. Or, number three, you teach them there is a thing as positions. You have your forwards, you have your midfield, and you have your defense, but they don't get it. They just swarm the ball. And that is what Paul is up to here in our passage today in Titus chapter 2. You can look at the Apostle Paul as almost like the coach. In Titus 2, he gives a list of specialized instructions to various groups in the church, ranging from retired people to young men to homemakers to business leaders. And he's trying to do those three same things, really. Go in the same direction. That direction is set out by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't leave the field early. Finish the game. And then play the position or the role that God has designed for your life. Before we go through these instructions, however, I want you to take notice how he frames these in in verses uh, chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. We'll start here. Titus chapter 2, verse 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Specifically, what is sound doctrine? It's the gospel, which remember, we had you look at last week. If you remember last week's message, upward to the beauty and glory of, of the God who saved you, backward the price he paid for your sin, and forward to where he is taking you and what he is making you. He tells Titus to teach his congregation the things that are an appropriate response to sound doctrine. And at the end of the list, he says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Or you could read that verse with a because. Do these things because of the grace of God has appeared. Or you do them because in your response to the grace of God. He makes the same point on both sides of his list. Everything in our lives is to be reshaped by our experience of the gospel. This point cannot be emphasized enough. Christianity is not a to-do list of things that we need to work harder on. It's not a set of morals to master. It's not a set of rituals to adopt from the start to the finish. The playbook for the team is the response to God's grace in our lives. So here's how he translates this into everyday life. This this passage in Titus is really some of the most practical instruction for everyday living in all of the Bible. This is like application in and of itself as we read through these passages here verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfad, steadfastness. Now, here's a caveat here. Please understand, and given these specific instructions, he, Paul's not trying to give a stereotype. We're saying that all older men are this way, just that in each age group, there are particular temptations. Some of you that are older in life know that there are different temptations through your different stages of life. You say, you know, who, who is Paul counting as an older man in this passage, and, and, and I would say he probably counts an older man as or, or, or young man um, in this passage as a young man as anyone between the ages of 18 and 42. And I say that because I'm 41. So I would say the young man is between the ages of 18 and 42. So who does he say is the older man? A lot of what he says to them he repeats to the other groups. But so the one instruction he gives uniquely to them is steadfastness steadfastness. A temptation for older men is to get to the last quarter of their life and coast. Many feel like they've done enough, they're tired, they've either made all their money they need to make or they have just given up on life. And so they start to only think about themselves pursuing their hobbies and interests and they're weary of giving themselves to service to others and to their community. And when And then they start to get grumpy and cynical, which always happens when you focus on yourself. And Paul tells them to stay steadfast. Stay in the game. Be self-controlled. Don't think only about your needs. Second your desires to the needs of the church and the next generation. Your life's accomplishment should not be a pile of money left in the bank account. But seeing the next generation thriving in the church. There are so many young people that could use the influence of the older generation into their lives to help the spread of the gospel. Don't give your last years of your life to only fish, play golf, collect seashells on the seashore, but give it to the kingdom of God. Be, in, be sound in faith, which is don't get cynical. Well, I, I don't understand young people destroying our country. The world is all just deteriorating. God's promises have not ceased to be true. God resurrected Jesus from the dead. He has a plan that he is pursuing in you and in the world. And do not give up on it because God is in control. Yes, the world is awful and wicked. When you turn on the news, it is falling apart. But our God is still in control, and we are still to pursue him in our lives. Do not give up on the next generation. Be temperate. Another way of saying don't give yourself excessively to numbing things like drugs or alcohol abusing alcohols for people who have no purpose you have something to live for if you were lying in a rest home you are still part of the greatest mission on earth and nothing else you could lay in your hospital bed and be a prayer warrior for the next generation we all have purpose in this life Every single one of us, if you are still walking, God still has a purpose for you. If you are still breathing, God has purpose for you. We have a reason to live. Do not ever stop. If you remember back to our Joshua series over the summer, we spent a whole sermon on Caleb. Caleb, this man in his late, probably 80s at this point, said, give me that mountain. I want that mountain. I want that land. We have even more reason to persevere than Caleb. The resurrection of Jesus ensures that nothing we do for his kingdom is wasted. We are building the kingdom that is destined to win and last forever. Every cup of cold water given in his name, he said, has its effect. Lead in serving. Mentor young men. Go on mission trips. Find ways in life to serve, and not just focus on yourself. We have a world that is just looking for one pleasure to the next pleasure to the next pleasure, just self-indulging everything that we can. Henry Beecher, Henry Ward Beecher said, it is not the going out of port, but the coming in that determines the success of the voyage. Finish strong. Older men is what Paul is saying in this passage. Verse three, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. One commentator talking about the word reverent or respectful, and he said older women can sometimes quit caring about what other people think so they lose their filters on speaking their mind or talking badly about other people he said when you have when you're young you have two things that you lose over age a natural physical beauty and filters and when those things are gone You have an ugly spirit, and there's nothing to mask it anymore. In truth, it was always there, just masked by physical beauty and filters. But by contrast, there are older women who are sweet, and they become more and more sweet as the older they get. And to me, those women become more and more beautiful as they get older because of their sweetness. Their beautiful character shines through because character is more beautiful than physical charms. So what would it look like he said if we could if all we could see was your spirit unmasked by your physical beauty, removing the filters, removing the charm. You know, the, the I'll give my wife some props here in this and the way that she handles and deals with people is a continual challenge to me. Just yesterday I went in to ask a favor of a local business for something. And my wife was giving me instructions on how I was to handle this conversation. And my youngest was sitting there in the car and I think I did a pretty good job. I got back in the car and I asked Cassie, I said, would mommy be proud? She goes, yeah, I think you did a pretty good job. You know, whatever you think, you think about me as pastor, no one thinks about me as being someone that's sweet. And I don't know that I want you to think about me as being sweet. But there's an idea of kindness there that it it comes through the kindness by cultivating the gospel character in your life. You, You can't really take credit when you're beautiful at 20. But you have no one but yourself to blame if you're ugly at 80. Think about that. The sweetness that comes from the character, the gospel character, that you develop over age. Number four, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Anyone pick out a few controversial put throw the verse back up there, Landry. Can anyone pick out a couple of controversial phrases for our world there in that that passage? Seriously, whenever someone is on a talk show and they want to diss the Bible, this is one of the passages that they will bring up. Doesn't the Bible actually say, and they'll you know, quote from one of these passages here in Titus, and the assumption is that the, the Bible in places like this, that it teaches male dominance. But is that what Paul means when he says, you know, tell them to be busy at home? Does that not mean that young women are, are not to work outside the home? Because there are multiple places in scripture we see examples of women working outside the home. And that is blessed. It just means that there is a tendency for young women like young men to be lured away from God-given responsibilities by the promise of fulfillment elsewhere. There's no denying that God has given the mother a particular responsibility in the home, and this often requires that she sacrifice other things that she could do to fulfill that. And often she can't give as much time to her career. Maybe she has to give it up altogether. And when you do that, there will always be a sense of loss. But God in the gospel says your primary goal should not be to fulfill yourself, but to be faithful to serve me. And where that entails sacrifice, embrace it joyfully. Find your fulfillment, not in self-actualization, but find your fulfillment in serving me. Serving me. This is one of those areas where the values of the world and the values of the kingdom of God, they stand in such stark contrast. Christians, however however we find their fulfillment, we, we find our fulfillment in serving God. And others in the place, he has place for them, not in self-actualization. And that often, if not always, when it comes to service, service requires sacrifice. Every single parent in this room has sacrificed something to raise a child. It requires sacrifice. Jesus found fulfillment in washing feet because that is what the father told him to do. That is, a uh, that, that we think today, that is not a very important task. He did not find his in fulfillment in the importance of the task. He found it in the approval of the Father. If for a time in your life, God has assigned you to care for children and establish a home, find your fulfillment in knowing you have been a faithful servant, not finding your fulfillment in the praise of the world. It's a difference. Or you could say it this way, if Jesus found fulfillment in washing feet, we can find fulfillment in wiping butts. We can. There's a truth in that statement. Your fulfillment is hearing from God at the end of this life, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is our fulfillment, not the praise and glory of men. While he says this to the young woman. it applies to dads too. There are a lot of things I can't do because some roles that God has assigned to me as a father and as a husband. You know, some of that looks like not getting to go on a, a guy's trip or a girl's trip. Or, you know, the wife hanging out with her girlfriends on the weekends. Why? Because we have children and a family to raise. You know, as a father, some of the joys that you have far surpass the pleasures of life that you can indulge yourself in. I mean, I get to discuss the vastness of the Star Wars universe, if you know my son, <laughs> on a weekly, if not daily basis. You know, I I, I get to talk about dinosaurs. With my youngest, I get to hear about the drama of Chick Fil A after every tri- after every shift when she comes home, and that's part of the joys of being a father, and enjoying and embracing that. One day when I get to heaven, everything I built and accomplished will be for naught. It'll be turned off. It faded away. The only thing left is faithfulness faithfulness to the mission of god that is what we live for in heaven we are rewarded not for our accomplishments but for our faithfulness faithfulness to our spouse faithfulness to our children faithfulness most importantly to our savior that is our reward That is what we live for. Paul says, and he says, urge younger women to be subjects to their husbands. What does he mean in that? Marriage is a dance in which both partners reenact the gospel almost every day. Why? Because we're both sinners. The husband does it by loving his wife like Christ loves the church, which means putting her wants and needs ahead of his own to the point that he would lay down his life for her. If you would lay down your life, that would certainly include deferring to her on things like places to eat, where to go on vacation, and what color the drapes and the furniture will be. There's times as a husband that I've had to bite my tongue to my wants in life out of my love for my wife. The wife does it by submitting submitting her will to her husband's. It has nothing to do with superiority. It has to do with the positions we play to reenact the gospel. When they do that, it's beautiful because it shows the character of Christ and he is beautiful. Beautiful. A husband sacrificially loving his wife and a wife submitted to her godly husband creates a relationship that the world can look at and never say how chaotic and disgusting. No. A lot of people who say they are turned off by Christian teaching on headship within marriage are attracted and they desire what they see and how a Christian marriage and what it produces in a Christian marriage My spiritual headship in our home is not about me dominating my wife. In fact, if I love my wife like Christ loves the church, I will voluntarily lose nine out of ten arguments. (laughs) When it comes, that's part of me loving my wife because I'm always putting her needs and her wants above mine. He says in verse 6, Likewise, Likewise means that in a general spirit of what he said to the young women also applies to the men. But then he adds this special instruction for the men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Why would Paul tell the young men to be self-controlled? Guys, if 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 you got this, if you learn to control your passions, your desires, your lust, you could be somebody that God would work mightily through d.l moody the famous bible teacher who started moody bible institute in chicago says the world has yet to see what god can do with one man totally sold out to him completely under self-control says in proverbs 25 28 a man without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken through saying yes to the grace of God will teach you to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Verse 9. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. God our Savior. Bond servants in the ancient time were somewhat, we would kind of view them as slaves, but a bond servant was really someone who was indebted to the master. There was no you know, credit score, no Equifax, Experian back in this time. You couldn't borrow money. So what happens is that if you borrowed money, you didn't pay it back, you had to then go work for someone for a period of years to repay your debt. So you were a bond servant, during that time. There was no filing for bankruptcy. You just had to go do whatever you work for. In a lot of ways today, the jobs that you have, you are in a way somewhat a bond servant because you are working to receive a paycheck. Our work should put our hope in and love for God on display. So when you are at the job site, when you are at the office you, the, the love of God should be seen in every aspect of your life. People seem so confused about what it means to be a Christian in the workplace. You know, they they, they think, you know, talking to them about worshiping God at your work, they think, you know, worshiping God at my, at my job, that seems so weird. You know, worshiping God at the workplace, does that mean I need to like start like this coffee shop called, you know, Jehovah Java or like Hebrews or something of that nature. But Paul points to a set of attitudes a believer should have because of the upward, backward, and forward look of the gospel. He says, in our work as employees, we should really have four attitudes as we are at the workplace each and every day. He says, integrity. When you can get away with pilfering, Don't, because God sees. God sees all. Do all of your work with integrity, excellence. You're not just doing the minimum required to get by. You're trying to bless your employers or the people you work for. Work hard. Work with excellence. Servanthood. You see their work as an act of service toward other people. Finding purpose in your work and service. All throughout this letter, Paul talks about seeking the common good. One of the distinctive things about the Christian approach to work is that believers see it as an act of service to the world. God created the work The world in an imperfect state and put men and women here as his co-creators to develop the raw materials of the world for his glory and the benefit of fellow human beings. We know that we were given the responsibility to work this land. Coming out of Genesis chapter 3, one of the things that God said because of sin is that man would work. We are designed to be workers Work gives us purpose in life. Number four, hope. For a believer, their work doesn't define them, which leads them not to take it too seriously or cheat to get ahead because it is not our identity. We don't find our hope in our work. Apart from God, our work becomes our identity. How many times have you met someone, maybe you've been at a, a party birthday party and you're you know introducing yourself and you know your your five-year-old soccer team they're going to have a a, a, an end of the season party and these parents that you've seen this whole time there you're now being asked to uh to interact with them as you introduce yourself the first question typically is what's your name second question typically is oh where do you live what's the third question what do you do? Where do you work? That's typically the the third question. If you don't have a a good answer, you come up with a title that makes you sound important. A believer is defined by his position with God, not his position on the organizational chart. You see, Paul says, when we do these four things, you will, in verse 10, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. If you work this way, you won't have any problems having opportunities to share Christ. They'll come and ask you, which leads to the three concluding observations about this passage, and we'll finish. He says, these behaviors are our best witness. They're our best witness to an unbelieving world. These values are so completely countercultural that people will notice even more today than they were 10 years ago. People may not like it when we talk about self-control and submission, but they find it attractive when we actually live it. Unbelievers who are repelled by the, the teaching, the Christian teaching on headship within marriage are attracted by the Christian marriage they see. Unbelievers who find Christian morality restricted are attracted to the good lives of the Christians they know. When is the last time that this when is the last time that is how you conducted your marriage, how you went about your business, how generous you were, made someone ask you to tell you about the hope that, they, that you have in Christ. The way that we live our lives to the world around us draws people in because they want it. They don't have it, and they want to know how we got it. Learn to see your marriage and your work as a theater for bringing glory to God and demonstrating the grace and hope of the gospel. Number two, the best testimony to the gospel happens in the mundane. There's so many mundane times in life. Did you notice how normal these relationships are? How every day, how mundane Paul describes just everyday relationships that he gives to us in Titus chapter 2. We think of great Christianity as revealing itself in big, dramatic missionary sacrifices, and sometimes it does. The most oftentimes Christianity, the fulfillment, the working out of Christianity, happens just in the mundane areas of life. Your Christianity is best measured by your relationships at home, your relationships at work, and your private life. If we judged your faith only by your relationships at home, how would you measure up? How would you measure up? But don't just hear this as a negative rebuke. See these ordinary things as theaters for God's extraordinary power in your life. God took David to the pasture to teach him the skills to fight the lion and the bear. The home is your pasture. Heroic Christianity is not born on the mission field, but it is born in the home. These behaviors, number three, flow directly out of the gospel. He finishes this passage in Titus chapter 2. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Don't look at these things like a to-do list. Why? Because they are just natural fruits of the gospel. Like a rose on a rose bush. You have two ways to get a rose on a rose bush. You can tape them on. You can tape roses onto a rose bush. And as people are passing by, but you'll have to get a new set of roses each week, and that will get wearisome. And there's another way to get roses on a rose bush, and that is to plant yourself the roses in the garden. Plant yourself thoroughly in the story of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 that we just looked at. How the grace of God appeared. Paul talked about it there in that passage. He he looked at, learn to constantly look upwards to the glory of God who saved you. He mentioned that the God who saved you, the God bringing about salvation for all people, then learn to look backwards to the price that he paid. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he said, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us, looking backward to the price that he paid, and then looking forward into what he is making you. He said there, he gave himself to redeem us from all unlawliness and to Purify for himself a people for his own possession. As you look upward, backward, and forward, the grace of God will grow naturally in your heart. That is our playbook, that is our goal. In this life is to be a people where the world around us sees the grace of God constantly in our lives. In Paul and Titus chapter 2, in the mundane areas of life, in our relationships and in the workplace, he tells us exactly how the grace of God can be displayed in such a practical, practical chapter in Scripture. Let's take this. Let's leave here today with the goal of allowing the grace of God to be on display. Let's pray.